Well, hopefully you have your Bibles open or your devices open to Hebrews chapter 13. I'm going to read the first six verses, and then we're going to dive right into this passage. Hebrews chapter 13, beginning in verse 1, says, Let brotherly love continue. That's the main heading in these six verses. Everything else flows out of that. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison, as though in prison with them, and those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all, and let the marriage bed be undefiled, for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from the love of money, and be content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? I live in a house that exploded. You may not know that. Before I lived in the house, the house that was on the property that I lived in uh, blew up. Uh, the guy who owned the house was getting it ready for its next renter, and the entire time that it was sitting empty, it was filling full of gas. And the owner went into the garage, flipped the light on, and the house blew sky high. Now, to allay your fears, he survived. He survived. Uh, another neighbor from down the street ran into the house, rolled the refrigerator off of him, and helped him get out to safety before any other damage was done. But in my neighborhood, in the general area around Triangle, people who have lived there for a while remember the day the house blew up. In fact, neighbors throughout our neighborhood, as we've met them and made our way around introducing ourselves to them, they were like, yeah, I can remember the day a piece of your roof landed in my yard. And I'm like, yep, that's our house. Every time I introduce myself to somebody that lives nearby, I say, I live in the house that blew up. And uh, of course, I wasn't in the house that blew up. And uh, I, I actually moved into a new house. But there's something I always remember. Even though it felt like a brand new home when we moved in, there was, everything was brand new in the house eight years ago when we moved in, except for the foundation and subpad. Even in the midst of an explosion, that brick and cement foundation remained. And it was so sturdy that when they came in and checked it, it was good enough to build a new house on top of that firm foundation so I live in a new house but part of it is left over when the shakedown happened from the explosion well as chapter 12 of Hebrews closed if you weren't with us during that time we were reminded that God will ultimately shake the world in judgment and that those things that have enduring value will remain it's generally speaking a word picture when God will shake the world and cause what is truly valuable to remain. It says in verse 26 of chapter 12, if you glance back, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, verse 27, yet once more, indicates the removal of the things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may remain. I want you to circle that word, remain, or underline it, or take note of it, because in a second, it's going to have important significance. 
in order to ensure that we are living for what matters, we are told to consider what will remain when God has ultimately judged our lives. And then we're told to respond by offering together acceptable worship to God. Look at verse 28. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. You see, what Jesus is producing in our lives as we come to him and submit ourselves to him, as we gather as a body, as we build his kingdom, what Jesus is building and delivering to us is a life in a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And he says, therefore, or and thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. And then he says, let brotherly love continue. Now, I don't know, I don't know about, like, chapter 13, verse 1, it feels to me for a second, when you look at it, it's like we're talking about this, like, shaking out and sense of judgment and what remains, and then the next words are, let brotherly love continue. It feels, doesn't it, does anyone else feel like it's kind of like a right turn out of nowhere? Well, it appears to be until you look and you realize after saying that God desires for us to build what will remain, that the words actually say, let brotherly love remain. And so here's what he's saying. He's saying as our act of worship, if we want to order our lives together as a people around the unshakable kingdom of God, then we would give ourselves to a community of brotherly love that encourages the things of substance so that we're living lives that remain when God judges the world. And so we're going to see two things from this passage out of that. We're going to see that this first, this first phrase, let brotherly love continue then, is the phrase that has the main verb under which we're to understand all of these others and other instructions. We're going to see four additional instructions about how we can build a community of brotherly love. And if you love taking notes and you need an outline, I'm going to give you it right here. Number one, brotherly love is the basis of an unshakable kingdom. Brotherly love is the basis of an unshakable kingdom. And then secondly, brotherly love is the basis of unusual confidence. We're going to see that out of the the foundation of a community of brotherly love, we can entrust ourselves to God to live lives of substance and worship that will remain when everything is shaken. So that's what we're going to do. Let's get to work. The first thing here we see in the text is we are told that brotherly love is the basis of an unshakable kingdom. Now, it would be easy to see that brotherly love kind of terminology is gender specific. So I just kind of want to say right up front, what it's doing is painting a picture of the kind of friendship and relationship, the depth of trust that exists between siblings in a healthy environment. The kind of brotherhood and sisterhood that siblings feel as they have to survive their parents' parenting. Can I get an amen from some teenagers out there? Some of y'all are going to have to talk back to me to keep me awake today. But this word is Philadelphia. Phileo, love, Adelphos, the love of brothers. And so we're told that this is the sort of thing that will 
allow us to build lives of substance that remain and an unshakable community. Brotherly love is the basis of an unshakable community and it's used as a word picture for us building those kind of relationships in the body of Christ. That's why uh, we often say that church isn't like a family, it is a family. So, As we look to build that kind of community, what the writer of Hebrews does is he looks at some of the things going on in the context of their lives and he begins to instruct them about things they're going to need to be particularly concerned about and he instructs them about four things that will help them build a sense of unshakable community. What are some of those concerns? Let's look at the first one. The first one can be found in verse 2. Verse 2 we see that if we are going to build an unshakable community, it's going to be a welcoming community. A welcoming community. Verse 2, do not, in order to do this, to let brotherly love build a substantively, substantive community that remains, in order to do this, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, is what he says. Do not neglect to show hospitality. He, he actually says hospitality in the body of Christ is not optional. It's something we have to be careful not to neglect. Now, a church that understands the things that matter, here's what he's showing us, a church that understands what is substantive is one that delights in turning strangers into family. That's the, that's the mark of a, of a healthy gospel-oriented community is they delight in turning strangers into family. The word hospitality here is a compound word of philo or phileo, love, and xenos, which means stranger. And so hospitality literally means the love of strangers. And so we're told that in a world that is xenophobic, we're to build a community of brotherly love that is philo xenos, that shows us using our lives to make strangers into family. So that's what hospitality means. Here's the vision. The vision is that we work together to build a community of familial love strong enough that those who are strangers and those who lack uh, an experience of genuine love and belonging get to be wrapped up in our experience of familial love in the body of Christ. And when they experience it, they feel like they found a home. That's our responsibility. The charge is that we would not neglect hospitality and neglect to use the resources of our home and our life and our gathering together as a body of Christ to consider here how we make sure those who are strangers to our relationships are quickly made family. In your neighborhood, exercising brotherly love looks like helping those who are strangers become family. He gives it first as an instruction to the body of Christ, but he also recognizes that people coming into our lives, we're to have a burgeoning sense of abundance and fullness relationally with one another as we love one another with a sense of brotherly love that there's plenty of room on the edges for others to get in on it. Don't you want to be a part of that? I mean, isn't that the kind of church you want to be a part of? Now, the reason that's so attractive is because it's exactly what God has done for us. It's what God has has dedicated sacrificially his life and energy to is taking us from strangers who do not belong to the house of God and bringing us in Christ around his table and making us family. This is the calling, this is the joy we have in the gospel and it's our calling as a people in an unshakable community. 
So we build a welcoming community. The second thing we're told that if we want to be a part of an unshakable community, we will build an empathetic community. Look at verse 3. Remember those who are in prison, and here's the key phrase, as though in prison with them. And then he expands it. And those who are mistreated in like manner, since you are also in the body. Remember those in prison as though imprisoned with them. Here the writer shows us what it looks like to care for one another in the body of Christ by focusing on a particular hardship that this church was experiencing. Let me, let me bring you into it. The basis, maybe you've under, this is just some random chunk of the Bible to you, but what it really is, is it's a sermon, a written sermon that was delivered to a group of Jewish Christians, likely in Rome, who were going through a particular hardship. The basis for this letter that we call Hebrews is that there was this growing pressure on these believers in the form of persecution for their faith. New Testament scholar William Lane makes the case that Hebrews was addressed to these Christians in Rome who were in the process of being blamed wrongly for Nero's great fire in the early 60s AD. And because of that, they had lost social standing. They were being imprisoned. Their property, and we can read about it, Hebrews chapter 10, their property is being plundered, and even some of them are being put to death. Identifying with people in that situation invited attention upon the person who was serving them and caring for them that could be avoided by distancing and forgetting about them. So here, he tells them under great risk, more risk than we would ever have to consider at this present historical moment in our lives. He says, remember those who are in prison, not just to think about them in your prayers, but as though you are imprisoned with them. One of the most powerful testimonies of the early church is that they took care of their brothers and sisters when they were put in those situations at risk of their own life and knowing that they would be identified and endangered because of it. In fact, to this group of people, there had been a persecution in the mid-40s AD where they had shown a powerful example of this kind of brotherly love of remembering those who were imprisoned as though imprisoned with them, that he's now reminding them of what it was like and saying, don't forget to do that. So the writer is urging them not to abandon one another in their deepest time of need as they're experiencing real injustice. So brotherly love here looks like seeing these brothers and sisters in their situation in a familial way that says, I can't just forget about it and move on with my life. Now, if we're honest, we realize that acquaintances can forget. They can forget you when your life circumstances become difficult, can't they? I mean, this is almost like the measure between acquaintances and family, right? Acquaintances and friendship when times get tough, acquaintances can move on with their life, but family doesn't forget, do they? And so they're told that they should remember the way that family remembers in a situation like this and remember as though imprisoned with them. This is where the word empathy comes from. It comes from being 
inside the experience, imagining what the experience of this imprisoned person, but he expands it. He says, actually, that they should consider anybody who is mistreated this way, that they should have this sort of community that when people are facing injustice, when people are facing mistreatment, that the first thing we do is we draw near like Jesus did to us, and we understand the situation deeply before we even begin to form our opinions or our thoughts about what's going on. Wouldn't this help us in our culture, where we criticize before we empathize, where people do suffer real injustice that we might from a distance not consider injustice, and we criticize and lob bombs from a distance about experiences we've never had? And so the instruction here is that we are to look at situations like imprisonment, look at situations like injustice, and we're to empathize before we criticize, and we're to draw near and understand. And the reason is all, again, because this is exactly what the Lord Jesus did for us. I mean, don't you marvel at the fact that even when we deserved what we got because of our sin, that Jesus drew near to us? That in a time where we could have been under the justice of God, he says he identified with us so deeply that he could understand the strength of our temptation and care for us and minister to us as one who really knows what it's like. And so, so we're told here in, in situations of imprisonment and mistreatment, Injustice, and I would say even deep trials, that what we need as a community is to be kind of people who draw near and listen and understand before we speak. It's a, it would be a powerful community when it comes to, to this. Here's one additional piece of good advice, he says. And don't forget that you have a body that can be mistreated just like everyone else. Did you notice the phrase here? How do we get inside this experience? Well, he says... He says, we do so as those who are mistreated, since you also are in the body. Now, if you look at the way that's phrased there, you can say, oh, because you belong to the body of Christ together. That's one motivation, but that's not what he has in view here. Actually, what he's saying is, is because you have bodies like them, and those bodies are vulnerable to the same kind of mistreatment that other people can, and someday that mistreatment might come for you, and you might be the one who's hoping nobody forgets. That's how we face injustice, mistreatment as people, in individual situations, and it's also how we carry ourselves in our posture in a world that is full of injustice, nationally, globally, and personally. And it's also how we lovingly care for one another when we go through deep trials. Have you ever, have you ever seen someone going through a deep trial and they're really struggling with their faith? And... Some people are tempted to just be like, what's wrong with them? Why don't they just strengthen up and hang on until you're the one in their shoes? And what you need is some real deep empathy and understanding and to feel like somebody's there with you. To be able to open your heart and not mince out all the words first but to let God get up inside of there as you're with somebody walking along and he brings healing restoration if we're going to build a community of brotherly love we're going to build an empathizing community remind yourself to get inside the situation best you can and that you might be next and then you'll have a greater ability to exercise brotherly love that's the second one the third one is if we are going to build 
an unshakable community of brotherly love, we build a sacred community. Notice in verse 4, he says, let marriage be honored. That word honor means held in higher regard, treasured above other things. The word sacred means to recognize that some things are set apart. They're in a special category. Man, I feel like this passage has me meddling in all kinds of stuff this morning. We get some real clear instruction about brotherly love and marriage here in this passage. So I just want to be clear as I can. Let's be clear. There's nothing surprising or unclear about the Bible's instruction concerning physical intimacy. I'm going to use that term here because we still have a lot of little listening ears present. But listen, in a church that wants people to walk in communion with God, we must urge one another to honor marriage. Marriage is a sacred gift from God. It's a, it's a sacred gift, which means that it's set apart purposefully by God, defined by God, limited by God, and given for our benefit under His guidance. That comes with everything that we think about it. Marriage is this sacred gift. It's part of His provision for us, and it's a divine institution that God Himself has ordered and limited That's why the writer here is concerned with the people of the church not disregarding God's instructions and limits concerning physical intimacy as it relates to marriage. I want you to notice that his reasoning here is in the context of brotherly love. Of how we love one another in the body and how we love one another in marriage and how we love those around us. And since we're speaking in the context of brotherly love, it helps us understand that when there's a failure to distinguish marriage and things that belong to it in the church, it's a failure to concern ourselves with one another's spiritual well-being. It's also a failure to trust God's limitations and order for physical intimacy in marriage that they are for our protection and for our provision. You see, it's really important that we're clear about this in the context of the body of Christ that we don't just join the cultural move that says whatever you feel like doing and whatever your inner impulse is, you should go ahead and do that. Here we see that marriage is sacred. He says, let it be honored. How do we honor it? We honor it by recognizing that it's a creation ordinance given by God that has been defined and given limits, and it only benefits us to the degree that we honor God's design and purpose for it in regards to physical intimacy. How do we do that? Well, before marriage, we protect one another. We show brotherhood, brotherly love to one another, We protect one another from sin and its effects by allowing the power of physical intimacy to be reserved for the lifelong commitment of marriage. Then in marriage, we protect one another from sin and its effects on our relationships, its effects on our souls, by providing a secure and exclusive place that is an expression of genuine love and self-giving. That's the purpose That's why this instruction gives limit and order. And so he joins to this instruction here that we have, he joins to it the warning that God judges the immoral and adulterer in this regard, and it's a reminder that the sin mentioned here is sin that genuine Christians should repent of. 
There's an assumption here in the passage, in his instruction, that there are people struggling to obey these words. There are people that have failed in this regard in the past, and that that his call to them is to hear the good news of the gospel, that we can turn from our sin and entrust ourselves to Christ and be forgiven. But he's reminding us here that should we decide that we don't care about that, that it's reason to call the real sense of communion that we have with God into question. Christians repent of sexual sin. That's what he's saying. So, pastorally, I would recommend two things in this area. First, submit yourself to God's limitations before marriage and in the context of marriage. Protect what God has called sacred in this regard. There is no spiritual health where sin dominates in this area. Second, on the mercy of God, if you have a history before marriage or during marriage that includes disregarding the instructions found here, then agree with God in confession that it's sin. One of the most healing, powerful things you could do to escape any sense of shame in this area, pastorally and on the basis of the gospel, I don't want you to be mired in shame, mired because of past decisions that haunt you maybe even, that you feel guilt and shame about in your life. Listen, we, we are gospel people. The good news is that Jesus Christ has paid for our sins he has covered his sins covered our sins with his blood he invites us to confess and forsake our sins and find mercy at the throne of grace and today through confession in your life i would say examine your life bring to god what you've never agreed with him about call it sin repent ask his forgiveness and live free from any sense of guilt and shame jesus has purchased that freedom for you It's a beautiful thing when we confess and forsake sin and we dedicate ourselves, we find mercy and help from the throne of grace for the genuine and total forgiveness that Christ provides and the strength that his spirit gives to us so that we can become faithful and we can live in the fullness of God's provision. Well, we have one more easy topic to get to before we land this plane. You're supposed to laugh at that. Y'all wait. We move from that easy topic to the topic of money. What's money have to do with brotherly love in the kingdom of God? Well, if we want to build an unshakable community, pursuing what remains, then we will need to build a generous community. A generous community. Look what it says here, verse 5. Look how strongly it says it. Keep your life free from the love of money. The idea here is that it is an entanglement. When it says keep your life free from the love of money, it gives us the sense that there's a danger of entanglement in the love of money. It's really interesting, you know, Matthew chapter 6, verse, what does this have to do with brotherly love? Well, Matthew 6, 24, Jesus gives us the instruction about worshiping God. He says, no one can serve two masters. Some of you are familiar with this. For either he will hate the one, Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. That's pretty clear, isn't it? He says that if we've given ourselves over to a love of money, we probably hate God in the end. (laughs) 
Hating God looks like trading him in like he's less valuable when money is concerned. Will you sell God out when money is concerned? That's the question, and it's an act of worship to keep our lives free from the love of money. But here, the author of Hebrews does something really interesting. When Jesus says you can't serve God and money, you can't love God and money, the author of Hebrews says not only can you not love money and love God, it's impossible to love money and really love one another. The sword of shared life. When we are wrapped up in a love of money, we can't we will not find our way into genuinely loving one another with brotherly love because we have a responsibility to open up the storehouses of our resources and together help one another thrive, to live generously with one another, to open up the storehouses of our resources and ask God, what do you want me to do, to, to do with my life, with my resources, with what you've blessed me with for the sake of your unshakable kingdom? I want to take the things that be, can, can be shaken out like money and I want to reinvest them in the things that can remain when the day is done and the Lord has judged the living and the dead. Some of y'all are invested in a bubble that's going to burst. Some of y'all have put your security and your hope, your confidence in money. You've used it to purchase security and there's a day when the pin's going to hit that and it's not going to be worth anything. You know, we live, we live in probably, the, statistically, the wealthiest part of the country. Several of the most wealthy countries, counties in the country are right here in the D.C. metro area. Prince William is most often in the top ten of median income of counties in the United States. We live at one of the most wealthy times in history. Us, in this area. And yet, I, I would say, so often, we are deeply concerned about money. So concerned about money that we give inordinate amounts of our time making sure that we can increase our ability to purchase security. You see, what happens is, is we give a testimony that way. We, we give a testimony that doesn't say that the Lord is my helper, but that if we are tied to a love of money and we make most of our decisions in life about purchasing financial security, what ends up happening is we fail to make the kind of decisions that builds real community. Now, there's nothing wrong with wealth. God gives wealth with wisdom, even, we see in, the, in Proverbs. There's nothing wrong with it, but the question is, do we love it? Are we putting our hope in it for security? And that can be tested by determining whether we're able to live with contentment when we don't have as much as we hoped. Pastorally, I often interact with people in this wealthiest place, in this wealthiest time, who are full of insecurity about the future. If we're going to build a generous community, we're going to have to be people who don't love money, but we love the unshakable kingdom of God. What could God do through open-handed resources in our community and around the world for the sake of the gospel? As we learn to be content, taking what God has provided to care for the needs of our life, and then we learn to be generous in terms of the kingdom of God, generous towards one another, generous towards our community. Wouldn't you want to be a part of a church that is radically generous? 
I'm proud of the fact that our church gives 25% of its budget to church planting and missions. It's one of the things, but you know, I mean, imagine if that could be 33% or 40% and the things that we needed as a church were taken care of. Imagine if we began looking at our budgets and asking first, God, why, what have you entrusted me with that I can be generous with, with the people in my neighborhood? How can I care for my brothers and sisters in Christ here? I would urge you to do th- two things that the author indicates here. Learn to be content with what you have. Make some decisions in your life not to meet needs that you can meet and then take the money you would have done not to meet desires in your life, impulses in your life that you could meet and use for your money and you have every right to go do and then take that money and do, do something generous and relational with it. Take those funds and use it to build a sense of community with other people, powerful experiences, uh, enjoyable meals, and be the people in your neighborhood who are regularly giving their life away and others know that they can depend on them in time of need and strategize with your resources. I would urge you to practice the regular exercise of saying no to this impulse and transferring those funds to acts of generosity in the name of Christ. Living generously is an act of faith, not built on concerns about scarcity, but built on our confidence about what we already have. He says, look what we have. He says, be content with what you have for. What is that? For God has said, I will never leave you or forsake you. Our wealth and security is built on the confidence that God is near and present with us in Christ Jesus. He promises to never leave us and forsake us. And as we give our lives away, he walks with us as we honor Christ who poured out everything for us. If we are going to be an unshakable community, we will have to build a generous community. As we close, we see... In this last idea, in this last verse, verse 6, the result of living like this. The result of a community of brotherly love is that brotherly love is the backdrop for unusual confidence in God. You see, when we have this sort of generous community, when we protect one another in brotherly love, when we're hospitable, when we empathize with people's suffering, Then together, we can accomplish the unthinkable. Your life individually, God can use in unthinkable ways because of the body of Christ that gives you strength. Have you ever met a middle school boy? Raise your hand if you've met a middle school boy. It wasn't long ago I could remember being one. The thing that I think about, just a solitary individual middle school boy, is that they're nervous, scared, insecure, I mean, middle school is like that, isn't it? But have you ever met a pack of middle school boys? I mean, something happens when you take a solitary, scared middle school boy and you put him into a pack of six or eight. Before long, they're constantly trying to make the next viral YouTube video, right? They will do things that would cause their harm, that look really ridiculous and stupid, that take all kinds of weird courage because they're hyped up on this sense of community that they've all of a sudden gained as you throw them into a big pile. A singular middle school boy is a scared mess. A pile of them is a force to be reckoned with. In reality, in a much more mature and healthy way, 
That's what God calls the church to be like. Most of what God would have you do with your life, if you were left to be a solitary individual person, you'd be too scared to pursue it. But in a community of people, sharing in this kind of brotherly love, we find a sort of boldness to say, the Lord is my helper. The Lord is my helper. Look what he says. He says, if we live this way, we can confidently say, we'll learn to confidently say, is what he's saying. We'll learn to be a people who confidently says, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Whether it's people who would come against us, our fears of what others might say, or our inability to overcome our own fears and our own need to entrust ourselves to God. He says, when we have a community like that, we learn to trust God as our help. How does that happen? I'll tell you how it happens. You see, brotherly love helps us to respond when others question or ridicule. If you are hospitable, you know, you might hear somebody say, if you are hospitable, people are going to take advantage of you. Your house is going to get beat up. You'll be inconvenienced. But for the one who you cared for, they will say, the Lord is my helper in this new place. I shall not fear. I have a family. Some might say, if you care for the imprisoned, you'll be associated with them Maybe even end up sharing in their problems. You don't want to get down in the mess of other people's suffering alongside them. But for the suffering one, the one you have not forgotten, they will say, the Lord never left me. He sent his people day and night to strengthen me. The Lord is my help. I will not fear what man can do to me. If you, some might say if you honor marriage, If you don't go with the cultural flow, you'll end up alone, disregarded. But this community says the Lord will not leave you or forsake you, and He delights in giving good gifts to His children who wait in faith. Some may say if you're generous, you may run into a time later when you needed the money. But this community says when your turn comes, we will be there. The Lord is our help. And altogether, in a community like that, as we live out our faith, as we suffer, as we rejoice and turn our eyes to Christ, we're reminded that the Lord is our helper. That is our testimony in a community of brotherly love. We stop believing in our own provision because our provision was never enough anyway. We look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, when we were imprisoned by our sin showed up no matter what would be said about him and drew near to us he drew so near to us that we're told that he was able to become our sin bearer and because of that on the cross he was counted as one who was cast off and cast aside and mocked and even by his own father the wrath of God against our sin was laid on him but when he was laid in the grave he was not forgotten the Lord raised him up on the third day and now we have a risen Savior who we say of that Lord has been my helper I would not be forgiven today if he had not been my helper I would not be free today if he had not been my helper no matter what I face he will never leave me nor forsake me if he didn't then he won't now the Lord is my helper what shall I fear and my desire my desire is that we would be a faith-filled community with that kind of confidence that the Lord 
is our help. I'm going to ask you to bow your heads as we consider preparing for the Lord's Supper. As our heads are bowed, we begin to prepare. I just want to encourage you just to respond to the Lord. Take a few moments before we sing. Just there in the quietness of this moment. Maybe there's something the Lord has spoken through this. You need to just lift up to Him. You need to respond. Maybe an area of sin that you've not confessed to Him and confidently felt the sense of His forgiveness. You know, the Lord today wants you to be free from guilt and shame. He invites you to confess your sin, forsake it, to find strength, encouragement. But maybe you just need to be honest to Him in this moment and respond. Maybe there's an area of faith that the Lord has called you to step out in and you're not confident about His provision. Today, He wants you to know He is your help. He is your helper. Maybe you're going through something and you felt like the Lord has forsaken you. And today, you need to be reminded that the Lord is near. He never leaves you or forsakes you. You might feel it right now in the depths of this trial. But the Lord is near. Take a moment. Talk to God. Father, we thank you for your love for us. We thank you that we can have confidence of your care and provision. We thank you that even these strong words, Lord, are given with an abundance of grace and love for our good. Lord, we pray that you'd give us hearts to receive them, to walk in them. Lord, we pray that you would fashion here at Pillar Church this kind of community. God, I pray for the person right now who feels distant and forsaken by you. Lord, that you would draw near to them and even through your body, you would bring people around them in their life so that they might experience your help. Lord, would you draw near to them today? Lord, I pray for the person who's carried shame and guilt over a past sin that as they confess to you even now, Lord, that you would bring cleansing and healing, freedom and forgiveness. God, as we remember the broken body of your son and his shed blood, would you give us confidence that you are our help? In Jesus' name, amen. In a moment, we're going to receive the Lord's Supper as a remembrance of why we can trust the Lord as our help. The broken body and the shed blood of Christ remind us that he would go to any lengths to draw near to us, and to help us. And if you have trusted Jesus Christ as your Savior, we invite you to join with us in that proclamation and testimony. We have elements at the back. If you didn't get them on the way in, certainly take a moment during this song to go back and get those. If you've never put your faith and trust in Christ, more important than receiving those, we would ask you to just let those pass and that we could talk to you at some point and help you know how you can begin a relationship with God. But right now, as we sing and as we respond, let's prepare for the Lord's Supper.